episode 9 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria, and your host. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com. And for information about the podcast, as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com. This week I have David Rankin, an old friend of mine, and one of Victoria's original playtesters inside the Roleplay Studio. So without further ado, hi David, how's it going? Yeah, good, thanks mate. How are you I'm doing just fine. Uh, it's uh, Easter Sunday here. I had a delicious turkey dinner with cranberry sauce and all that type of stuff, so I'm feeling satiated. Um, what about yourself? Any, anything happened today? Get some Easter eggs? Easter bunny came? Uh, I, I managed to eat uh, an egg, but uh, actually I had mangoes, honey and, and uh, yogurt, which is probably not very traditional. It's not, but it sounds delicious nonetheless. So, starting <laughs> off here, um, how long have you been a role player? I think uh, about 28, 29 years. Oh, you got an early start. Yeah. Yeah, I started uh, when I was six or seven. I got conscripted into my brother Scott's game. Yeah, that's, that's often the way that it starts. You always, the, the more people you get, the better. So it's, were you just uh, a gnome stuck in a bag or were you? did you get to be your own character or did he play your character for you and you just sort of like sat there and rolled the dice? Well, it's, uh, it's funny you should say a gnome stuck in a bag because I always, uh, when I was younger, I always enjoyed playing smaller races. And at one stage, I actually was a gnome stuck in a bag. It seems to be a, a common thread. Uh, Sean in episode four was talking about how the first time he got to play, he got to be a, a henchman, which is a gnome stuck in a bag. So. <laughs> I got to be on the back of a zombie and stabbing it through the bag. It was quite an exciting time. <laughs> it sounds like it. So, um, what did you play first? Skill, stamina, luck, I think. Oh, right, so you were playing uh, Fighting Fantasy. Yeah, that's, that's what it was called, wasn't it? Uh, it's kind of because they actually made a role-playing game out of the books. I can vaguely remember the cover. Right, is that the one with that kind of like cat monster thing sort of busting out? Yeah, I think yeah, orange, so. Orange cover or something. Kind of cat monster dragon, ready orange, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you just had your three stats and your old, I think, 36, and that was that was everything. And that's all it took though, right? Yeah, well, uh, we, right from the get-go, we were kind of tinkerers, so we um, put some more rules and made it a little more complex as we went. I see. So you were just like uh, trotting around Titan, or did you go? Uh, did you go with like a more traditional setting, like uh, the Lord of the Rings sort of situation? Or uh, Scott uh, Scott always makes his own worlds generally, right? Uh, so it was just stock fantasy, right? Yeah. Scott is uh, is David's brother, and he's one of the original playtesters as well. And I'm hoping that uh, in the near future I'll be able to get uh, Scott on the podcast as well. So, well, what are you playing now? Um, running Legend of the Five Rings, and what uh, what attracted you to that game particularly? I think everything attracts me to that game particularly. It's got samurai and, and ninjas and ogres and zombies. It's got everything you could possibly need. And how do you find the, the character generation? And uh, is there magic at all? I've not played the Legends of the Five Rings. Well, you, you probably should give it a go. It's got yeah, it's got magic. Uh, the magic's very powerful, but they are, they're also priests, so they have quite a lot of uh, religious duties as well. 
so they're not just kind of uh, here's your wizard and you cast spells it's it's more you're a a shukinja, I think they're called, and and you have a number of things that you have to do, including you know births, deaths, and marriages. Doesn't sound like much fun to role play one of those guys. Is that kind of the the handbrake they put on the mal- magic being extra powerful? They say you can be one of these guys, but unfortunately, you're going to have to perform all these other various pieces of drudge work. Yeah, I don't know if there's a, a handbrake. The the magic itself, whilst it's powerful, it's not necessarily. Uh, particularly combative, and it's it's not too easy to cast. But uh, it's it's all based around spirits, and and every every class I think has that kind of social role as well. Because of course the samurai cast was the nobility, and and of course they've got uh, a lot of duties to do. And being a samurai game, duties the the name of the game. Sure. So, is it more of an action game, or more of a um, sort of character development game, or can you you take it in whichever direction you like? Really, any direction you like, because the the courts are also a big and important thing uh, in a system where someone can tell you that you have to kill yourself and you have to do it. Uh, what goes on politically is just as important as what goes on the battlefield. Oh, yeah, I can I can see that it's uh, it's a pretty high sta- high stakes you're playing for. So if somebody was to say, for instance, choose law as their uh, skill, it could actually be used in a in a court setting. Yeah, very much so. Uh, especially because once again they've got uh, an ancestral uh, reverence. So. If you've got a good law skill and you can kind of drudge up some history on someone, you can use that against them. If you know about their their family or something that they did, you know their great great grandfather did this, then you can use that against a, a character NPC or PC. So law is definitely a big part of it. So as the GM, what do you find are the strengths of the system? Well, I, I like the system through and through. It does get a little uh, dice heavy at times. So you you can wind up rolling 10d10, but uh, I don't know about the specific strengths. Combat's fun, but it takes a long time. Uh, but uh, everything works quite well. It all makes sense. Lots of uh, perhaps one of the weaknesses is the skills aren't quite as important as the stats in, in the game. Right, so it's one of those types of games where you know you put all of your effort in at the front end, and there's not much development subsequently. Or can you put up your uh, stats as well? You can you can put up uh, everything. It's it starts off quite low powered, but it can it can get very high. It's got quite a curve. Right. Okay. Well, I think people probably have a pretty good idea where you're coming from, things that you like, and uh, yeah, a little bit of your background. But uh, so, what's your favourite book or supplement other than Victoria, of course? Well, you're going to enjoy this probably. It's the Rhythm Supplement for Hanwild. Oh, yes, excellent, Hanwild. You're, you're going to be uh, fighting for Han here. So far, I haven't had anything that's really, that's really in favour of, uh, of Han, but I'm hoping you and Richard both will, will be able to describe the virtues of uh, Han for us. So what's so awesome about this particular supplement and Han in general? Well, this is part of Han World, so this has got nothing to do with the system which is famous for, for bogging people down. This is purely the, the campaign world. And uh, on the cover, from memory, there's a, there's a soldier who doesn't look very happy. Uh, there's a dog. <laughs> there's a person hanging and some crows, I think. 
And that kind of sums it up. It's this grisly place where uh, they choose a different bunch of gods to pray to than than the rest of the the world. They choose the evil gods. So it's a really grisly and awful place, and I just love putting players in it. (laughs) Well, why wouldn't you? The Han world has – it's got English weather. So you've got – uh, terrible, terrible winters, not particularly good autumns, rainy springs, and, and not very nice summers either. Right, so that and, adds the general overall feeling of despair and, uh, and uh, depression. Yeah, but it, it also creates a sense of elation when you get a nice day, doesn't it? You know, contrast. I, I guess, sure, but that's sort of similar to uh, sticking a tack in your foot and then realising how good it feels to not have a tack stuck in your foot but you could always just not stick a tack in your foot to start with but but then you would have never known the, the joys of tack removal <laughs> I, I guess there's, there is that but <laughs> is, is that something worth knowing so what is it about so do you like the system for Han at all or do you just use the, the setting uh, the system once everything's done it's actually quite simple but getting everything done takes a long time. I like the system. Uh, I don't expect everyone does. No, I haven't had a... I mean, really I've only had Chris has been uh, vocal in his... Uh, this episode <laughs> five, vocal in his distaste for, uh, for, for Han. But I, I certainly don't have any trouble with something that's a, that's a struggle. But, uh, but yeah, like the overall setting doesn't seem to... Uh, I mean, I guess it gives you an op- uh, the uh, what I was saying in that last in the episode was that it's it's interesting to play a game where your character in the game has less skills than you do in real life, and uh, I always find that quite interesting. It's not a matter of you know like like exploring some fabulous element or some dream world of yourself. It's like just like the tech situation where you know you're playing Han and you're like you finish the game, you're like oh, it feels so good to not be playing Han anymore. <laughs> and again, as you say, you would never know the joy of not playing Han. <laughs> well, it, it does. It offers a bit more than that. Um, if you were in Canada, I'd run a game for you, and you could fall in love with it too, <laughs> or not. Um, but it, it creates. A, it's got a very rich setting, and there's a lot of work gone into that. Uh, and I've got pretty much every book for the Han Island itself. And it just—it's a wealth of information that you can kind of use at any time. If if you're floundering a little, you can just grab the book. Say, okay, well you're here. This is what's around, and and it just gives you a, a lot of information. The system itself—it's kind of low fantasy until you get the magic and the elves and things going. Um, and one of the things I like about it is, uh, yeah, for example, the armor. If you if you finally wind up with that wonderful suit of armor that's keeping you incredibly well protected, you'll probably find about oh, two minutes into the combat you can barely move because you're exhausted. So it's this uh, trade-off. Yeah, right, right. So it's pretty realistic in terms of uh, in terms of the combat element of it. Yeah, and it, it creates a different kind of fight because if you wind up with two very well armored individuals, it's a it's a battle of endurance more than more than damage because you probably won't actually be able to hurt each other unless you get lucky and po- poke them in the eye. Right. Uh, you probably won't be doing an awful lot of damage until one of you is fatigued enough that uh, they start making mistakes. Right. Because you've got uh, uh, quite a lot of 
critical successes available to you and critical failures and that's when things start to happen is when people make a big mistake and people make a good success you get uh, a result but whilst everyone's fit and able it tends to be less yeah just kind of just bashing each other and, and doing small amounts right. I, I quite like it so is there the possibility then for like a like a first roll up to roll badly and the other guy rolls well and then you did yep Yes, there is. You could uh, you could get very lucky. You could because uh, you crit on a, a five or a zero, and it's a D percentile system. So you could go in there and you critically succeed, and they critically fail. And uh, then you happen to get a, a very lucky roll, and you hit them in the neck, and they don't have armor there, and uh, the head comes off, for example. If they've got uh, there's a series of rolls and, and things that'll go before that happens. But if if you get very lucky, you can. Yeah, you can do that. Poke them in the eye, hit them on the skull. Right, and, and so the, all those hours you put into character development could be rendered useless in the first minute of play if you were. Yeah, yeah. If uh, if you if you wanted to go that way, I guess uh, it's it's not likely. It's right. it's you know it's probably uh, if, uh, if probably less likely than. For example, Middle Earth or uh, Rollmaster. Right. Okay. Sure. Yeah, I was just trying to get a, a feel for it because, as I say, I've never played Han. I have had a little bit to do with the setting. I've certainly seen the the sad covers, but um, I haven't. I haven't <laughs> Some of them are heavy. <laughs> well, in that in that particular one, there's nobody hanging, and there's a there's a, a vague suggestion that there might be some sunshine somewhere, or. Well, there's there's different uh, different places. There's a kind of a Viking place, and there's a uh, a republic, which is kind of your Roman, almost Roman Empire. There's your good fantasy, stock fantasy, your bad stock fantasy. There's the dwarves. There's the mages island. So you've got a lot of scope. I just particularly enjoy uh, the delights of the grizzly place. All right, fair enough. This next section of the recording doesn't flow directly on from what you've just heard. After the interview proper, we got to talking about Han, amongst other things, so I clicked record and have inserted it here as it made the most sense. The continuation of the interview will follow. Um, the thing particularly about Han, I don't hate it, but it's interesting to have a game where you can take forever to create a character, and then their lifespan, even in game time, can literally be five minutes. Where'd you get that information from, Daniel? You, you, you just you just said it right then. You said it takes a long time to put a character together, and there are criticals that could uh, that could kill you right away. Yeah, see, it depends how you want to do it, though. You, you can make a character in, in in a very short amount of time. It's the maths that actually slows you down. And right. so, if you're good at maths, then you'll get through real quick. Or if you've got a calculator handy, but uh, yeah, I suppose. And then that whole critical thing, I think you. It's much more unlikely to happen in Han than it is some other games. Like Rollmaster or Merp. Or like Rollmaster or Merp, where... And, and it seems so much more random in Rollmaster or Merp, where you're like, oh, you, you die. If I roll this, you die. Yeah, yeah. yeah you uh, an yeah, imaginary deceased turtle. You yeah, crack your skull. You crush your skull, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Whereas in Han, it's more like, well... There's the series of fail-safes that you have to go through. It's like a nuclear launch. It's not like a sudden blast. It's like 
you have to have A, had this horrible situation play out. B, you had to have failed this. C, they had to hit you in one specific spot and, and then then you had to fail another. You know, there's five or six roles that all have to go particularly poorly before you actually just wind up dead. You might just wind up horribly maimed and um, with a grievous impairment. <laughs> well, that's I mean, an upside to everything, isn't there? I mean, there's no way to, you know, like get the feeling of uh, not being killed just by being grievously maimed. Well, thank goodness I haven't been killed. That feels so good. Um, yeah. And then also the other thing about it is the limited skills that you have when you uh, when you start out. That whole idea of being more skillful as your actual self than as your character. Yes, and that's that depends, once again. I guess it's kind of like Warhammer in a way, where it depends what class you roll. Uh, in Han, you get skills based on what your parents did, what you do, and you get bonus points. So you can actually wind up with a ton of skills. You might just be hopeless at most of them. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> in that case, that's me, you know, but I'm actually got some skills in some areas. Like I'm, like I've, I, I know how to, uh, how to hold a real handgun. I've been to one of those uh, shooting range type things, but you know, I wouldn't rely on myself in any, uh, in any serious situation to be able to use it or to you know, drive a race car. Or Well, that's, something. yeah, because Han says... Anyone can grab a spear and stab someone with it because that's a skill that's actually very easy to do in Han. Uh, it's just not everyone can make jewellery. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine a game based around uh, making jewellery, but there you go. Well, you, that might be your job or your parents' job, so you have it there. And yeah, you know, and then it's up to the player and the GM to actually bring that in somehow, so it's pivotal little and exciting. Yeah, I, I but, agree with you entirely. If you're going to have a character, as a GM... Like the very minimum that you have to do is you need to read your character's character sheets and be sure to incorporate the skills that they actually have into your narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and you can see, especially after the game's progressed a little, where people are spending their points and then you know that that's what excites them so that mm. you can bring it in and try and make it some pivotal and exciting roles where everyone else fails and this person succeeds because they're the best at it. Right, so should somebody should something actually come up in the game if they're going to improve that skill? Yeah, uh, I think so. Uh, you know, like, uh, for example, one of the characters uh, in, in my L5R game is particularly good at poetry, so you can easily bring in a point where poetry is going to have a, an impact on the game. Right. Uh, and one of the people's a courtier, so as much as there might be trouble with ogres and zombies, you want to still always have courtier roles coming up when you can so they don't feel completely useless. Right, right, for sure. That's the end of that little supplemental snippet, and now we return to the regular flow of the interview. Um, so, if you could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, what would it be? And it doesn't necessarily mean that you think it's badly written. It could just be because it's wronged you in some random way in the past. Well, I guess they all kind of deserve to live in a way. Uh, someone's put a lot of effort into them. Sure. But Twilight 2000, I think it was called The New Era. Right. I think I'd get rid of that one. Why is that? Uh, that had a, a particular uh, system flaw, right. the new era, if you like, where if your gun didn't have penetration, then you could forget about injuring an armoured person. So the famous picture, I think, is someone with you know this giant laser beam with zero penetration and Conan the Barbarian with his leather vest right. and the guy you know, zapping him over and over again and getting nowhere. Right, okay. So that was just a, a badly written piece in there, or was that a, like a fundamental system flaw? I, th- I think it was a fundamental system flaw because 
you know, depending on whether or not you have a, you know, kind of a combat-oriented uh, campaign or not, uh, you start off and, and you think you've made everything sweet and then you, you get into a wee combat and you suddenly realise that this person cannot possibly harm this person. Right. Well, that sounds like a, a distinct lack of playtesting on behalf of the uh, of the developer there. It does, doesn't it? And the system beforehand from memory was good and the system for uh, Twilight 2000, which is essentially made by the same people, I think, was very, very thorough. Uh, probably the clunkiest system I've ever seen, though. Right. In what way, clunky? Uh, it was the firing armour-piercing shells at armoured vehicles was was really bogged down and you had to do the penetration and see which parts of the vehicle got injured and whether or not it penetrated that so you know it goes through the armor hits the engine goes through the engine hits the fuel goes through the fuel hits the driver goes through the driver hits the commander and so on and that could you know you could take 20 minutes half an hour an hour to figure out one shell into one tank right okay so it was the sort of game that would it would be at the uh, sort of the war gaming end of it rather than the than the improv sort of end of the role-playing spectrum I I guess that depends on how you run it. Because at the end of the day, you can throw that out and say, you know, you can, you can do whatever you like with that. But the way they had it set up, it was just obviously by someone that did like rules and liked realism. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, I'm not uh, I'm not hating on any particular game here. I'm just... Because not, not everything fits every person. And just like with food, you know, like there's something will something that somebody loves will be something else that uh, that somebody hates. So, um, as I say, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that it's, that it's badly written or anything. It's just that, for whatever reason, it doesn't, it doesn't appeal to you. But, uh, yeah, not being able to kill somebody with a laser beam is, uh, seems to be a little difficult to, uh, to work around. Well, uh, so we're talking about Twilight 2000 now, which is the post-apocalyptic European theatre of war, modern kind of contemporary weapons. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it probably does appeal to the the wargamer more. However, I liked the setting, and I liked the kind of soldier of fortune aspect of it. So when I came across the rules that I found were a bit clunky, I just basically threw them away. Right. Um, Which sort of leads to... Uh, another question that I have, which is, if you were going to total to uh, 100%, uh, how would you rank uh, the importance of system, GM, and players? I would say your GM's probably the most important. Uh, uh, If we could give the GM 70%. Right. We can give the players 25 and we can give the system 5. So you don't feel that there are any systems with particular mechanics that really enhance the, the play of the game? I'm thinking specifically now back to what you're talking about with uh, Legends of the Five Rings, you know, where the game mechanic can cause people to, uh, to commit suicide um, based upon you know, other things that are going on in the game. And I'm guessing that there's a, there's a system for that rather than just the GM's whimsy. Well, I think uh, what I'm trying to say is more that as much as the system gives you you know a wealth of tools and, and things it's what you do with them and you can pretty much turn any game into fun because that's that's essentially the the plan isn't it is that you enjoy yourselves and that the players enjoy themselves so if if that's your goal then any system really can can provide that even if you want to go into my garage and dig out my uh, copy of ninjas of the night or whatever it's called absolutely horrible thing I'm sure you could still have fun with it 
Sure. Uh, what I was really getting at is uh, not so much that you could make any uh, game into fun, but by to make some games into fun, like say, for example, the Twilight 2000 we were just talking about, if you don't like to follow the path of a single bullet going through the, the, the radiator and the block and the, and the, drive <laughs> and the commander and so on and so forth, then you, then you take that and throw you, you take that and throw that away and the, the, the setting can still be fun but I'm not so much talking about the, the setting as the system itself um, and whether there are certain mechanics that add an interesting element uh, add, an, add interesting elements to the game and actually encourages a certain type of certain type of role playing so given that you can't throw um, the system away altogether if you're playing a game is, is, uh, mm. do you find there's any value in any particular mechanics that make a game more enjoyable? Absolutely Absolutely, you've got to have a you've got to have risk and you've got to have achievements and that's what you get through the system isn't it, it's, it's where uh, your character has been built up to this point where they can be good at something and you can be in a situation where it's difficult but you succeed because you are good at it and and that's important in a system I guess percentile systems are nice because everyone can understand percentile systems and right. and you don't want too many rules getting in the way but you still need that ability to to fail or succeed and it's right. nice if you can um, catastrophically fail as well I find that actually adds a lot to a game sure sure and also be uh, resoundingly successful as well yeah, although in saying that, uh, I, f- I find when someone succeeds incredibly well, perhaps it's just my personality coming through, I find that when someone succeeds very well, it kind of ends a situation, but where, where someone fails horrifically, it creates a, a series of new situations. Uh, for example, in Han, uh, uh, fellow Richard uh, happened to, even though he was very good at stealth, happened to critically fail at pretty much every time he tried to do it, and that led to all sorts of shenanigans. Sure, I think that uh, you know that was one of the reasons why I added that element to uh, to Victoria. When you you fail, you can uh, you gain a, a plot point, but then you gain an additional plot point if you'll uh, be the author of your own demise, which is to say, you know, you describe what it is that goes wrong. Then it can help to throw up a whole lot more interesting things. And and I absolutely uh, absolutely agree with the. Uh, with failure, you know, more interesting stuff happens, and with success, something cool happens. Then that's it, right? So, like yeah. you say, it, it doesn't it doesn't encourage more story, more role play, and, and really, I'm thinking about um, authors here. Now, I've read a, a few books about where authors or listened to interviews with authors talking about what's going on, and one that I have listened to a couple of times because I I find his writing uh, pretty good, but he seems to have a very good grasp of what's um, going on is Ken Follett, and one of the things that, that he says is that uh, you know every every scene apart from the last one needs to uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but every scene except for the last one needs to end in disaster um, because that's what drives the story forward. If, if the person is routinely successful, then then there is no drama, right? And most drama comes mm. from failure. So I hadn't really thought of that. Uh, in terms of role-playing games before, but you're you're absolutely right. You know, failure makes the game more interesting, and that can create more, a more interesting interesting story. Well played. Yeah. Um, so, are there any games or supplements that you're looking forward to particularly? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I guess not because I don't really I don't really do much research. I've kind of got my head in the sand. Uh, I know what games I like, and and I know what settings I like so I just kind of 
uh, keep my head in the sand playing the old games and then when something comes out I might have a look but uh, I'm quite happy with what I've got at the moment I think role players in general are fairly when they. I was talking to Chris about having, you know, uh, the role playing equivalent of a soulmate, and uh, this is the Chris from episode five. Um, and his role playing equivalent of a soulmate is uh, is Mage, uh, where it just seems to, to fit his personality, his uh, his playing style. And for you, I guess it's uh, Legend of the Five Rings, or perhaps perhaps your mistress is Han, or the other way around. But um, until the game fails to to capture your interest, I get there's a lot of people that stick with the same. There are people that are still playing first edition Dungeons and Dragons and wouldn't even consider uh, changing. But I mean, of all the people that I uh, that have role played with, you and Richard probably are the two that have played the most different games. What uh, you started off with the uh, fighting fantasy uh, world of Titan mm-hmm. role playing game, and where did you go from there? I think next was Middle Earth. Although, in saying that, actually, there was a game that my brother made in between, I believe. Uh, kind of advanced skill stamina luck. Right. Uh, and then it was Middle Earth, which I loved. And then possibly AD&D. And then Rollmaster. And from there, probably back to AD&D, and there was a very lengthy campaign uh, with AD&D 2nd Edition, which was, yeah, it was a, a good system. I've got fond memories of it. I don't know that I'd play it again, but... Uh, and from there, we I think we kind of got to the point where we were all a bit older and had a bit more money, and we just kind of got all sorts of systems and tried all sorts of things. Right, and working in a I've got, uh, playing slash comic shop probably helped with that as well. Yeah, yeah, I'd, you know, I'd, you know, I could order all the stuff I wanted, and and when I'd put things out on the shelf, if I decided I liked it more than the shelf needed it, then then I could purchase it immediately. So yeah, I've got uh, all sorts of bits and pieces. I've got the most of the World of Darkness role playing games. I had most of those, uh, including Street Fighter. Right. Which, uh, which was a pretty hilarious game. Uh, and, and really, I think I've, I've tried a pretty good percentage of systems out there. Maybe not the, the newer ones. Right, and you used to seem to... You, you seem were uh, particularly fonder of a game called Underground? Yeah, I've got a lot of... Let's see, I'm just trying to think. My memory's not what it once was. You were talking about underground, and I think that uh, one of the quotes in there is uh, something about if if uh, if rubber bands were food, I would eat them for every meal or something like that. <laughs> really? I'll believe you. I think, is that the, the one with the, the um, Tasty Ghoul, the cannibal fast food restaurant? I, 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 I don't know, because all I know about that game was somehow you, you like Underground, and then somehow, and then there was the quote regarding rubber bands are your favourite thing if they were uh, food you'd eat them for every meal. I, I don't know if that's from Underground, but those two ideas go together in my head. I'm not, <laughs> sure, if, I'm not sure if that was a quote from the game or, or what was going on, but. Yes, yeah, I've, I've got a few. Uh, uh, blank spots in, in the old memory so I think I have a huge amount of underground supplements in my garage as we speak right. and I believe it is the one with the tasty ghoul uh, and that's yeah I, I liked it but no one else did uh, 
I think there's two people I know of in the entire world that like that game, and we both have most of the books. <laughs> <laughs> but no one else wanted to play it, and no one wanted to have anything to do with it. So what was the premise of Underground? Because other than the rubber bands, I don't know anything. It's modern mercenaries, I think genetically engineered or somehow altered so that they can be bigger and stronger and hold bigger guns and kind of corporations uh, sitting around, you know, these great big hordes of uh, enhanced mercenaries to do the dirty work of countries and whatnot. I think something along those lines. It's been a very long time since I've even opened one of the books, to be honest. Yeah, it actually sounds like you're describing a game that I used to play on the on the computer by Bullfrog Games, a game called Syndicate. Apparently they're making a uh, making a, a new version of it. Uh, it was supposed to be last year, but that sounds almost identical to the story there was in Syndicate, but yeah, like genetically enhanced chaps doing the world of uh, sort of like corporate states and, and stuff like that, but... Uh, the big difference there would be that Syndicate was quite sinister and serious, whereas Underground is larger than life and a little bit silly. Right, and intentionally so. Because you, you might... Yeah, well, for example, the Tasty Ghoul, the, uh, on your driver's licence, you declare whether or not you want to become a donor or whether or not you want to become fast food. Oh, I see, nice. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you kind of wind up with these guys that might be 10 feet tall holding, you know, ridiculously huge guns, blowing chunks and walls. And it was it was definitely, whether intended or otherwise, it was definitely a little bit, um, a little bit funny. A little bit tongue-in-cheek, it sounds, it sounds like it. And uh, do, you, uh, do you recall anything about the system for that? I don't... I don't recall anything about the system for that, which I guess must mean that it didn't really stand out. But I only ever got to run it a couple of times, and and it was just met with such a bad response. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and back on the shelf, you, you quietly read it as you were uh, as you were like crying about the loss of your uh, your beloved game, and, and yeah, and, and well, I've got so many books. Well, that's so many books, and none of them get any use. That's right. It's impossible to play all of them. That's for sure. So, um, if yeah. you could be a player or a GM, which would you choose, and why? I would choose to be. It's a tough call because I would love to be a player, but I think I'd choose to be a GM because I love a good story, and uh, it's. It's kind of tricky to say, but... Uh, you don't rely on anybody else to do it for you? Yeah. Uh, you, there's nothing more disappointing than a role-playing game going somewhere you didn't want it to. Uh, and it's nice to uh, yeah, to be in charge of making sure it all comes together nicely. Right, sure. And and one of the things that I talked about in Victoria is that if, if you go... And it's a fine line to tread because if you're going to tell a story where... I mean, it's not exactly on, on railroad tracks, but if you're constantly sort of having to push and prod and diverge your players to the point where they're following a path that's enjoyable to you as the as a storyteller, then you, know, you should probably think about writing fiction. Now, there's nothing wrong with mm. having a tight game. I mean, some players like being passengers to a degree and, and making small inputs now and again, but um, 
for most people, they like to have a little bit more control over their destiny. But but I, I can definitely see where you're coming from. It's hard sometimes when you're you're playing a role playing game and it goes off in a direction that you have no interest in, and it sort of saps all of your uh, enjoyment of the game. Not necessarily because it's bad, but because you really wanted to push it in a certain direction and it didn't go that direction, and and uh, you were left sort of feeling unfulfilled at the end of this you know four hour session. Right? Well, more uh, more I think like. For example, with Legend of the Five Rings, if someone was to run Legend of the Five Rings and they were to take uh, aspects that I consider incredibly important to the game and to ignore them, then it, it just it's kind of upsetting to see something that I consider to be such a, a beautiful idea um, turned into dungeon bashing or or some other thing that I don't particularly think it's suited for. It's It's got this such a, a rich bunch of options with the whole samurai and uh, honor system that I don't want someone else to take that and turn it into a big turd pie. Sure, and that's always the, the risk, right, of somebody else's interpretation of what you like. It's uh, one of the reasons why if I really like something I don't read the reviews for it. Um, I remember you telling me a not uh, telling me a story one time about you had um, bought the uh, and I think she gave it to me uh, the Cranberries album to the Faithful Departed, and you said there's a reason why you don't like it. Uh, do, do I want to know? And I said no because I actually quite like it. And and that's along the same lines of if you if you like something, don't read somebody else's review about it because you know it. it could cause you to think about it in a different way, and you may never see it the same again. It's like that cover of uh, James Bond's Goldeneye, where he's holding the gun, but if you look at it in a certain way, it looks like his mouth is extra is extra wide. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that image, <laughs> but but the overall point is that you know if you like something the way it is, then reading or you know being part of, in the case of a role playing game, somebody else's interpretation of it may diminish in some way your enjoyment of it. Is that? Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah you, everyone will have experienced it where they've read a book and that book became a movie and that movie had a character in it and you went, that's not that what they were like. Right. That's cast terribly or it's, it's not what they should sound like or it's not what they should look like. Uh, and yeah, it's that kind of, that kind of phenomenon where your, you know, some, some of your ideas are definitely sacred to you and if someone trashes those, you'll get upset. Sure. Um, or diminish your enjoyment of it. Generally speaking, I don't have too much of a problem with them making a bad job of a movie from a book because I can say, well, that's just the way they are with movies. They don't, they're not able to portray the level of, you know, character development or, you know, they're not able to, they're not able to be as good as my imagination, you know, because books have so much that they require from your imagination in order to make them make sense that you don't really realize mm. how much you're, how much the blanks you're filling in until you see a film and all those, all those bits are gone, right? So, so generally speaking, I don't have a problem with that, but, uh, but yeah, somebody else's review for sure, like somebody else's review of the book, or did you notice this or did you notice that? How would you feel if I ran Victoria, completely ignored all your, your lovely ideas and turned it into a dungeon fest? Um, well, first of all, I'd be flattered you're playing the game at all, but, uh, but second of all, <laughs> yeah, it would, be, uh, it would be hard to a degree to see all of the various bits that you'd put a lot of uh, time and effort into not being employed in, in that way. But at the same time, I think probably, um, although I do see what you're, what you're saying, um, it would be hard to fault somebody's interpretation of the rules. Um, but I think probably the 
the setting would be the thing that would be the hardest to see to see change. I, would, I could care less how the mechanic, yeah. is, the mechanic is used in a way, but the heart and soul of the game, for me at least, is the setting because there are there are plenty of games set in Victorian times, and there are plenty of different systems for resolving conflict. You know, not in Victorian times, but but across the board. So, you know, the chance of you creating a system that is really, really, really different is is unlikely because everybody's thought of every idea that there's been already. So really mm. when it comes to putting together a game, you've fallen, you're, what makes your game different or good is going to be your setting. The more time you put into your setting, and that's what's going to make things interesting. And in the same way as uh, books, you know, it's really the, if there are so many crime procedurals written, you can read books by anybody and, and get a crime procedural, but it's really the characters that make things compelling. And, and, you know, we're all unique snowflakes, and so your characters are your unique snowflakes if you're a player. But if you're a, if you're a game master, then it's really your backstory and your setting that's your, um, that's your unique snowflake. And so I think probably mm. that would be the hardest part to see messed with. And that's what you're saying about Legend of the Five Rings, right? Like you wouldn't like to see yeah. all of that stuff butchered. Well, for example, a game where the honor system's thrown away. You know, if you run the game, because you could turn it into D&D if you wanted to. You could say, here's, here's a goblin, you kill it, and you get some you get some gold, and now you can buy a better katana. But the thing that makes the system beautiful in my eyes is the fact that there's this whole honor and glory and the whole, as long as I'm polite and, and sincere, it doesn't matter if I'm lying. Uh, and there's all these little aspects that if you threw away, I would... Yeah, turn over in my grave right. if I was dead. <laughs> uh, but that's ultimately, I guess, why I would GM is because uh, it's partially, I guess, satisfies my uh, inner megalomaniac and uh, because I would hate to see the things I love butchered. So what's the perfect number of people to roleplay? Well, it's not seven. Uh, which is what I've got at the moment. <laughs> but I, I would say probably five. Four the one GM, four five players. And okay. Yep, five and one, four and one. Yeah, four and one. I think it's probably... Three and one's good. Four and one's good. Five and one's getting a little, a little hard to handle. Six. The problem with the six is that you can't give everyone the time they deserve and also you've got more catching up to do. Right. So when three people get together, they've got less to you know, at least to talk about, less people's days to talk about than six. So right. you you get uh, into the into the game a little bit quicker, I guess. Right. So you're talking about uh, that sort of chatting that goes on before the game, you know, that social interaction. Well, that's that's part of it, but also whilst you're in the game, where only one person can talk at a time. So if you've got you know seven, then someone's probably not going to get a fair share. Right. Um, well, that kind of goes into my next question, which is, um, you know, how often do you role play and for how long? Uh, preferably once a week. It hasn't been happening like that because uh, a few of us have been going overseas. But uh, once a week, and it's about three hours. Uh, I would like, to, I would like to go for for longer, but everyone's pretty busy these days. There's children and work and things like that involved. Right. Have you ever tried to play over Skype or um, over Google Talk or anything like that? 
Now, you you wanted to, and, and I kind of I liked the idea almost. I'm just afraid that it, it won't quite come off. I don't know. We could give it a go, though. Oh, sure. Uh, the the thing that I'm not sure if it's going to work is the uh, whether the sound is going to be good when you when you're talking. Really, own, like really literally only one person at a time can can talk and and in a social situation you're very good at filtering out all of the other noises around you so that you can really only hear the person that uh, you're talking to but when you're uh talking over the computer for whatever reason i'm sure somebody knows exactly what it is but i don't um it's much more difficult if there's lots of noises to go on lots of noises going on in the background it's very difficult to focus on one person's voice so so that would be yeah. my that would be my concern over uh yeah exactly exactly so and i guess you'd have to keep your players your player amounts low and everyone would have to be very dedicated to the game uh you'd have to want to make it work and you'd have to work at making it work but Right. Before I took on something like that, I'd probably try and play in a couple of games myself just to see how it how it went. I think being a game master would be would be is one thing, but being a game master and having to sort of be the technology master as well to try and make sure that everything was working right for everybody. That that sort of half an hour uh, time span before you can even start role playing would probably get even longer when you had to get all these people into conference calls and so forth as well so your actual amount of role playing you know prep time versus role playing time might be uh, the ratio might be even worse so doing it like that but uh, yeah if anybody out there is uh, is experienced with this type of thing I'd love to uh, get you on the show and uh, we could perhaps talk about it Daniel at hazardgaming.com if you'd be interested in being a guest and after going inside the role play studio maybe talking a little bit about that um, so uh, should males uh, play females in role-playing games? I don't, and I won't. Uh, but whatever blows your hair back, I suppose. It's uh, something that, that some people love to do and will always do, and it's something that, obviously, myself, I just won't do. Uh, Why is but that? Yeah, go for gold. Why? Why won't I do it? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. I guess I'm just uh, not very good at playing women. It's hard enough to understand them, let alone try and, and pretend like you are one. Right, sure. Uh, and I don't, uh, I don't really see that it. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't really appeal to me at all. Uh, if you're playing any kind of character, then you are investigating something and if you mm. are playing a female is your gm capable of of creating situations where you know reacting in an appropriate way to uh, a female so that you get that actually get that experience um role players in general get a lot of stick about being you know socially inept particularly around uh, women and we've talked about it several times on the show but i, I can't help feeling that you're not necessarily going to get a real feeling for that uh, femaleness um, unless you've got a GM that's particularly empathic, which is not to say that it can't happen, but the most it seems to me that the most authentic experience as a male you're going to get by role-playing a female. playing a male. Now, unless you're playing Chatter Up game, which I don't believe has been written yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> people probably there, wouldn't Dave. do too well at <laughs> it. Yeah. 
Uh, well, I, I had some ideas for a game, but maybe I'll throw it all away and go for that. <laughs> <laughs> chat, chatter up, chat, chat apostrophe R apostrophe up, chatter up, yeah. <laughs> you go. Um, so, and and going. What does it to bring your, to a game, though? Well, again, I, I, I don't. I'm not opposed to role-playing a female, but if I'm going to play a female, there needs to be a particular aspect of the of the setting that that's going to uh, play into. So, for example, um, your Legends of the Five Rings... Um, What's it like to be a female on that? Are there certain th- because I know that there's the there's the geisha and the tea ceremonies and stuff like that. You know, like would it be fun to play a female? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, you've got, for example, the the Lion Clan has a bunch of um, berserker katana wielding uh, samurai women, but then you've got things like the scorpion courtiers, where uh, maybe whilst people are watching you, you're um, serving tea and being polite. But when people aren't watching you, hanging from the rafters and dripping poison into their mouth via a string. So it caters to to both quite well. And it has specific things where you can only do them if you're one sex or the other. And they're all very interesting. So you wouldn't play one of those? Uh, I wouldn't, but but as the GM I do. uh, Obviously I've got to be representing uh, pretty much everything in the world. So, uh, but... I suppose uh, I could play the the Natsu, uh, the the crazy lady with the katana, but I probably wouldn't. Uh, I'd, there's a lot of uh, the thing with the game is there's there's a lot of different characters I'd love to play, but they're not the ones that immediately appeal to me. Right. So, um, if you could be a character in a role playing game, uh, what would it be? And that doesn't mm. mean like like I'm going to play underground and I'm going to be a, uh, a corporate boss. I mean like if you suddenly boom. Could wave a magic wand and be a an actual character in an actual game, an actual setting. What would it be? It would be aberrant, and I would have the ability to fly, uh, and a few of the other ones which uh, I quite like. Uh, for example, not needing to to age or. Uh, never catching colds or, or what have you, not needing to sleep. That's a superhero game, and it's got all sorts of exciting things. I've, I've made characters uh, with that thought in mind where I've gone, if I could have any of these powers, which would I do? And, and I've made that character. Right. So I guess that has a real, it was, pers- uh, real uh, possibilities for sort of catharsis in a way. Catharsis? Well, like, uh, you know, you get to, I mean, maybe not so like much. Like soft. Uh, <laughs> maybe not so much now when you, you know, you're old and you've got uh, sort of a more, not necessarily more fulfilled life, but, you know, like your perspectives have changed. You know, like as a, as a youngster, Chris, episode five was talking about, you know, teenagers, you know, uh, sort of finding their place in the world and playing these super powerful characters where, you know, they can be in control of their own destiny rather than being, you know, a slave to various physiological changes going on in their lives and, you know, living with their parents and, you know, having a limited amount of, of control, you know, like playing superheroes um, allows them to, you know, experience all of those those things and can be cathartic in a way can help to deal with that, you know, that suppressed rage and angst and, you know, all that sort of thing. But, um as a um, you know as a an older person uh, what 
mm-hmm. particular um, things would you enjoy about that, or do you just like the idea of you know imagining that you're flying? I absolutely love the idea of the being able to fly. That's something I would like to see the end of the world, which uh, would be a lot more uh, an option if I was to live longer. Uh, I, I'd love to just to have more time to learn and, and look and and it's just yeah there's, there's a lot of things that appeal to me there and I don't think it's because I've got some particular angst against any one or thing it's just if you're going to say okay I can be anything then you know why why choose uh, why choose the Harnack fellow who's going to live a horrible life and die at the age of 28 sure so, if if you're gonna pick something, then if you're gonna go dream, for gold, dream big, get, get the diamonds, yeah, dream big. Uh, you know, you might you might wind up being that uh, wonderful superhero person that goes around and saves people and find that very rewarding. But would you find it uh, lonely? I know that uh, Sir John Gilgood, one of the things that he says, the worst thing about being about getting old uh, was that all your friends die. So he was ninety whatever when he was when he was talking about this, but. Uh, as a as a villain that li- uh, sorry as a superhero that lived for this amount of time, your only other friends would be would potentially be superheroes, and because there are so few of them, there's no there's no knowing if you're necessarily going to get along with any of them. So, how do you think you'd, you'd uh, respond to the loneliness of, of all your family and friends dying, and essentially you being cast adrift in time? Well, that's uh, that's something you you couldn't really say how you'd cope with that until you you got to it. I think it would be um, heartbreaking on a regular kind of occurrence, but maybe you could wear black lipstick and white face paint or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess if that, if that fills the hole for you, sure. Well, you, you know, you, you are. Built by the things that you get, you know, the losses that you've felt, and and by the things that you've gained. So, I guess it would it would probably give you a lot of things, you know, inspiration to write sad songs and write books and things. But um, I don't know how you deal with it. But I would like to be in a situation where I had to. And then you could find out if that was uh, if that was if that was real or not, or and see if that. Uh, Black lipstick and white face paint did, in fact, fill the void for you. <laughs> so, do yeah. you yeah. or should GMs fudge rolls? Hey, well, sometimes I like to roll my dice in front of the players. Uh, sometimes I'll even get the players to roll the dice for me. So, really, it comes down to the situation. Sometimes you know that. There's no point in this particular role going that particular way because all it's going to do is upset someone, so maybe fudge it. But for the most part, you, you've got to be very, very careful because that's what gives you your sense of achievement is that someone's not fudging the dice. You can't get a sense of achievement if you know that someone's tweaking it for you. The, the ability to fail and, and die is what makes success and living exciting. Right, so if you were a superhero and you knew you were going to live forever, would that take the enjoyment out of life? I bet you it would. <laughs> going back to what you were saying before. <laughs> so, yeah, just, just yeah. going back to the, the fudging roles. Um, I see what you mean, uh, that you need to feel like the uh, playing field is uh, level and that your success or failure is, failure is, is genuine. But 
I mean, I've been a GM and a player probably um, more a GM than I've been a player, but even as a player, I expect that the GM is probably fudging roles. Um, but what I was talking about with Farrell last week is if you are going to, if you've got a combat and you're fighting X number of ogres, like if you add an ogre or subtract an ogre, you're essentially fudging your story and making it more, e- making it easier or more difficult anyway. So, how do you, how would you reconcile that idea versus fudging an individual role? Well, the mechanics are there like a referee. So, if you pull one over the referee, you're cheating. But if you're writing the story and you say there's six ogres instead of seven, and this is going to mean that you can win then you're balancing your game. So how you pull that over is that um, that's just storytelling, isn't it? You're not going, oh, you're fighting eight ogres. Oh, you're losing. Tell you what, you're fighting six ogres. You're going, okay, you're fighting eight ogres. Uh, Things are going poorly for you. Uh, Someone else comes into the fray and picks up an ogre or one of the ogres accidentally hits one of the other ogres and they have a fight. It's, It's how you do it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you want to make a story that's captivating, you can't just have it all hanging out there and change change stuff as you uh, as you go along because then the players get no sense of it. But if you don't have your roles visible in the first place, you don't have to contend with any of that stuff. I like having dice. I like having dice in there. And and one of the things that I wanted to I don't have anything against fudging roles at all. Um, but one of the things that I put into um, Victoria was, you know, that the characters had these plot points that they could use. And also I, I dispensed with the idea of, of hit points and went purely for a, a narrative um, outcome for any for any combat so that, for example, if they were getting beaten up by the ogres, then instead of them being killed necessarily at the end, you know, something overall bad would happen. And like we were talking about before, it's those bad things that happen that, that keep the story interesting. So yeah, it is. So I mean, one of the things that L five R gives you is that when you take a hit and it kills you, it doesn't actually kill you. It puts you down, and you have to be hit once more. So once you've run out of your hit points or whatever they're called, your wound levels, you're not actually dead. You're just lying down, and you can't do anything. And it's only then if someone takes uh, an extra hit against you that you die. So. It lends itself to combats where most of the people can fall over, but it's this hard-fought battle where you've won, even though everyone's lying down at the end. So I quite like that because it means that really to kill someone, they have to have put themselves into a particularly horrible situation or you have to be particularly vindictive, and it's very easy to to not kill them. Yeah, and that's so in in Victoria. You know, once you've bested your opponent, then you have to go to the trouble then of, of killing the person. So you actually have to make that conscious choice that you're going to you know, actually end somebody's life. And in role-playing games in general, you don't ever have to contend with that idea. You know, like the hit points run out and they're dead and then that's it. But if you actually put somebody in a situation where they're forced to make a decision where you know, this thing gets to live or this thing gets to die, then that kind of goes uh, to one of the things that you don't get in a lot of role-playing games where people have to start making decisions about whether they are or aren't going to kill somebody. Mm. Yeah, and, and it should be, depending on who it is or what it is, it should be a fairly difficult decision. And, and in Victoria, it's, I guess it's all about the, the repercussions and consequence. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that kind of goes to what we were talking, that I've talked about, uh, sort of a common thread, I suppose, but that every role that you make in a, in a game, should every role that you make in a game be meaningful? Well, define meaningful. Okay, so I'm going to pick a lock on a building, and I roll to pick the lock, and I fail, and I don't open the lock. Uh, and nothing happens. That's okay. Sure. Yeah, nothing but, happens. But, but there it, was a potential for something to happen. Sure, but... It's not that nothing happens, it's that the opposite of something happened. But wouldn't it be more interesting that if you were trying to pick the lock, that your lockpick got stuck in, in the lock, or that in the process of trying to open this lock, or you know, you were jiggling it, or whatever, you made a noise, and a, and a guard was, was alerted. It's this idea of the null result. You know, you tried to do something, I see, yeah. and, and nothing happens. The story is not advanced by the role. The role might just as well not have happened. And it's that, that crazy situation where... Um, uh, there's a I forget exactly the name of the, the film now, but I, I'll have tracked it down when it comes to the show notes. But um, in... Dungeons and Dragons, depending on your strength, you've got the opportunity to uh, bend bars and lift gates. And in this uh, in this little uh, web um, film, the guys go up to the gate, and this really super strong guy goes up and tries to lift the gate, and he's got like a, a 93% chance of lifting it or whatever it is, and he can't lift it. Um, and then the next person tries it as this weakling fight or something like that, and he's got like a 17% chance, and he rolls a 2. So, you know, he's a, he walks up and just lifts it easily and, and takes it out of the way, and it goes, and that sort of goes to the idea that when, when he can't lift it, you know, that's the, that's the null result, nothing happens, just somebody else trots up and, and, uh, and gives it a go. So that's sort of the idea of the null, the null result. And in, in Victoria, um, that particular scene and that particular um, film was something that really ins- inspired me to write the rule that, that uh, if you can't, if you have the highest ability in a certain skill um, and you try to do something unsuccessful, nobody else in your group can then, can then try. Um, which, of course, and I guess if somebody wants to game the system, um, it would inspire them to start with the person with the least skill and work their way up. But, but if you've got a, if you've got a, a, a responsible GM then, then, and you've got something that's difficult to do, then your most skilled player should start doing it. If, you're gonna, if people are going to game the system to that extent, then, you know, then it's not... Then, it, then it's, it's not, not really role playing as we no, know. No, that's right. No, it's, it becomes it's a puzzle, and there's nothing wrong with with making it a puzzle. That's, I mean, if that's that's what you're into, then that's fine. But the idea of me including that uh, rule was to try to encourage this uh, the lack of there being a null result. You know, like somebody tries and nothing happens, so somebody else tries until somebody is ultimately successful. So, uh, does mm-hmm. Legends of Five Rings, for example, support that idea where there is no such thing as a null result? Well, I think it depends what you're making people roll for. Yeah. I could uh, I could say uh, you're in court. You can see a person roll your heraldry skill, uh, whatever it's called, courtier something or other. And okay, so if you succeed, you know this guy's called such and such, and he did so and so. And if you fail, you don't know who he is. Is it an old result? Uh, potentially, but it just depends how you do it. Once again, it comes back to the the ability for ca- catastrophic failure, which I like 
So even though there's a chance of a null result, there's also a chance of a, a very interesting result due to a, a terrible failure. Right. Uh, and a good example of that, perhaps, in my current game, one of the players, played by Scott Campbell, actually believes that Sue's character is someone that they're not because they botched that role I was talking about where you try and recognize someone. Right. And you sort of brought up an, a, a secondary point here, which is uh, you know what it is that you actually choose to roll for. And going back to what you yeah. said earlier on about you know wanting to be uh, in control of the story, then if you are going to if you need something to happen, then there's only two things that you're interested in. One, they achieve this result, or two, something really terrible happens. But if something really terrible is going to happen, then uh, or that is one of those two things, then do you roll for the player? And if you're going to roll for the player, does that sort of diminish the interest of the player? Because if you've got this thing, you can either just roll the dice for them, knowing what their skills are, and say, you happen to notice such and such in the, in the crowd, and they are such mm. and such a person, or you say, you notice such and such in the crowd, and it's obviously somebody or other... And but that supposition that they've made is completely inaccurate, and it takes the story in a different, interesting direction. What point do you get people to roll or not to roll? Does it come down to the maturity where they can handle uh, dealing with something that they actually believe is true, even though the player themselves knows it's not true? Yeah, well, that's the thing. It comes down to your players, doesn't it? Because I think. Uh, the players I have, they're all quite capable of deluding themselves. So they will, you know, if they if they fail a role and they they can role play that, they can say that their character, you know, has this piece of misinformation or what have you. Uh, but it would come down, you know, and perhaps in a younger game, you'd wind up, you know, and the, and the GM kind of peers over his GM screen and looks at someone surreptitiously and rolls a dice and goes, you notice nothing or what have you. So it just depends. On the on your players, really, and I think uh, that's why I was saying, you know, the, the players and the GM are so important. Whereas the system is not so important uh, because you can, you know, you can make the most out of your your die system, or you can let it run your game. Sure, yeah, and that comes down to the fudging rolls for sure. So, um, what's the uh What's the best and or most inspiring role-playing film or TV series that uh, that you've, you've watched, or you know something that's really made you go, "Oh, I want to play a game like that," or "I want to write a game like that"? Uh, no, I I don't really draw a lot of inspiration from from movies and TV. I think I don't watch a lot of either. Uh, I guess uh, samurai uh, films will always make me want to run off and play a samurai game. Uh, things like Lone Wolf and Cub, which is a particularly bloody samurai film, makes you kind of or makes me want to to run a nice uh, samurai game. But uh, for for me, inspiration can come from anything as small as a individual song lyric or. Or anything really, just something someone says, something I see. Right. Uh, That's uh, it's interesting you you say that because there was a, uh, a game that I wrote for Mage, which was based upon a very short conversation that I had with with my mother. Um, 
and she said that when she was travelling over to England, one of the stops they made was in uh, Tokyo. But uh, I think that Kyoto is the is the was the cap was the, where the emperor was. Right? Is that right? Is it Kyoto? That's the well, Osaka. I can't remember. Anyway, um, but there's the Shogun's Palace, and uh, in the Shogun's Palace, one of the room had uh, a wooden floor. But the wooden floors made up of various tiny little pieces of wood that were put together in such a way that it was impossible to walk on them, even if you're a ninja, without them making a squeaking noise. And so, <laughs> from just that little idea, I envisaged somebody uh, in Christchurch who, um, like an, an old Japanese mage that lived in Christchurch, who had created a floor that that was like this. And then so I. Had, so just from this idea of this floor and this Japanese uh, mage that had, that had made this floor, I extrapolated to, the, to the, the chronicle that I wrote that was based around it. So um, I definitely see your um, I definitely see what you mean. Like you can just even the smallest, smallest thing taken and extrapolated can, can, be the, mm. uh, can be the source for anything. So, so you just you know, if something takes your fancy, really that's you know you should you should follow it and try and use that energy to to put it put a game together. You might have to change it a little, but uh, there's definitely a but whatever inspires you. Oh yeah, you've, I mean you've got to love what you're doing, otherwise it's you know it's not going to come through to your players. If you're you know running something that's just because somebody's asked you to, then then chances are it's not going to be as fun as if you're running something you really liked. And and as a GM, um, I've never really taken uh, too much. Um, I wouldn't say I haven't taken any notice, but the, if I'm going to be the GM, then then this is going to be the, the the type of story that I'm interested in telling. And mm. although I'm sensitive to what the characters within the game want to do and the areas that they want to explore, you know, that, that's totally fine. But I think as a GM, um, I don't know if I would say, the players say, I want to play a space game, make a space game. I'm not going to go out and make a space game. So if you want to, you know, play a space game, then you know maybe you should run a space game. <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? Like it's as a GM, like it's like you can't just say, okay, J.K. Rowling, I want you to write about um, the. Uh, I want you to write about World War Two. Yeah, or or something like that. Right? Like people write about what's interesting to them and what they can to them, yeah. from creatively. So, so yeah, I think, and that's comes back to why I'd like to be a GM, I guess, uh, because I I want to be in the games that I like, and by being a GM, I can guarantee that. Right. There's only so much time in the day, right? So, so yeah, I, I hadn't really thought of it from that perspective before, but, you know, getting a... I always... I mean, for that question, I would always choose a GM because, you know, why play one character when you can play thousands? But, um, <laughs> but, but there's also that, too, that, you know, you don't want to find yourself playing a game that... You don't you don't enjoy it. You've only got so much time in your week available for role playing, and to find yourself in a in a game that you don't like because of the setting, then you know, that would be that would be upsetting to me. Um, so, who's your favourite villain, and why? Well, uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, I quite like Lu Bu. You'll have to tell me. Uh, I've got no idea. He was a particularly uh, fierce warrior in the uh, Three Kingdoms era of China. Um, I just liked... He wasn't the smartest, but he was the strongest, and he was quite easily manipulated, and I think he kind of got 
just pushed wherever his woman wanted him to go or something. I'm, I'm probably making a botch of it, but that kind of appealed to me that everyone was terrified of him, but he was avoidable in a way. Right. Uh, but I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's one of those things I don't really take examples out of out of the world I live in. Uh, one of my greatest failings is, is when someone tries says, oh, can you give me an example of something? I generally can't. I, I like uh, Thanos from the comics because even when he had basically everything he wanted, uh, he had assembled some ultimate power and was about to take over the entire multiverse, something about his inherent evil nature tweaked him to ruin it for himself. Right. I can't remember the specifics of it, but it's that whole kind of evil feeds upon itself idea. Right, so you enjoyed the complexity of the the villain. The reason that I ask is, um, in in Victoria, I say, you know, like, your villain is your plot. Whatever's going on in your, your game is happening because of some individual. And yeah. generally speaking, that's going to be your plot. They are driving the plot. Your characters are reacting rather than um, rather than than acting. Right? They're all rela- they're all working um, in response to something that's already that's already in place. So, if you want to have a good game um, or you want to tell a good story, your villain has got to be good and has got to be interesting and it's got to be a challenge without that there's no there's no impetus so i'm not so interested in the specifics of the villain but what it is about the villain that uh, that you like and it sounds like it's the the ambiguity of thanos was it thanos did you say well, thanos it was just the the way that he would always ultimately defeat himself because because of uh, just his attitude <laughs> But uh, I, I like uh, in a game I, I run. I like to have the the villains or the the various forces uh, acting independently of the players. And so, depending on what your players are doing, they may or may not cross paths with these people that are, are trying to. You know, they have their own goals. And uh, there's a particular villain in the game I'm running at the moment, which I have a lot of fun with because. Uh, yeah, the the people playing just really aren't sure whether or not he is a villain. Right, so it's that ambiguity again. You, the, having the um, having your villains be cardboard, like Farrell put it, moustache twirling, you know, um, cardboard cutouts, obvious villains is not uh, is is not all that interesting, right? Like, okay, that's the bad guy. That's that's my target type thing. Yeah, and that's uh, yeah, it's that kind of uh, prompts a lot of the stuff I like in, in role-playing games uh, is that a villain's not necessarily dishonest John with his nya it's it's someone that could have just had a situation that's put them in a you know a, a place where they they do things that other people see as bad or you know their goals are just different so yeah your villains can be all sorts of things can't they yeah, they don't have to necessarily be bad. They just have to be in opposition to the to the characters. And to what? Yeah. And in Victoria, I, I set up um, three separate factions uh, for that specific specific purpose, so that the players could, to a degree, choose. I mean, there's obviously it's more heavily weighted towards one than the other two, but there's a possibility for being any one of the three. And depending on your um, 
on your own personal set of beliefs, you may gravitate towards one more than the other. And, and I think that interest always comes from ambiguity. If things are, are black and white, then it's then it's less then it's less interesting, at least uh, at least to me. So, yeah, I think. Yeah, because then then you, the person just wants to solve it. You know, if this person's bad. I'll shoot them. Game over. But yeah, if they're not sure, yes, yeah, for or sure. if they think there's a chance of redemption, yeah, that too, yeah, absolutely. So, t- changing tack uh, completely. Um, do you have any dice superstitions? I think I did when I was younger, uh, and I, I like to pick the colour of my dice. I like them to be somewhat coordinated. Uh, but no, I don't have any superstitions. Uh, not not towards random number generating. Uh, I do like, like my red dice, though. <laughs> from the standpoint of, red. of uh, messing up the characters, or just purely for the aesthetic of them? Uh, purely for the aesthetic. I I don't know. I mean, you could call this a superstition, but I do tend to roll quite well. Right. Uh, and statistically, that shouldn't happen, I, I know. But you, we've all had groups where one person is just amazingly bad at rolling dice mm. and one person's particularly good. Uh, is it a superstition or is it just a set of circumstances? I don't know. Probably along the lines of the um, astrology and stuff like that. You only ever remember the hits, you don't remember the misses, right? And, and so probably players that think that they're lucky or think that they're good or think that they're rolling well will ignore the all the bad rolls and, and lord the ones that are good. Uh, and so all the, all the ones that are, that are bad will go unnoticed. But the player that thinks, that they're, under, rolling, yeah. the things that they're, thinks that they're rolling badly will go, oh, I rolled badly again, of course I did. They're drawing attention to the badly rolled numbers. And so the perception is that, that some people are lucky and some people are, uh, are unlucky. But... Um, yeah, so no dice superstitions for you. Farrell was saying that he's got that he's got dice superstitions, and I was saying that I, I found that surprising because in our group of uh, role players, and and over those the years, um, we've played with a lot of the same people. I don't remember I don't remember anybody having actual you know, serious dice superstitions. But um, well, the, the, the word serious, you see, it's fun to play with the dice and, and roll it and go, oh, is this dice good? Is this dice bad? It's fun to have some superstitions, but at the end of the day, I think. For the most part, we're all quite well aware that when you roll a dice, it's physics, and and that's about it. Mm, mm. So, what's your role-playing elevator pitch, including a go-to example? Uh, well, I had to describe it quite uh, quite a bit, really. Uh, I tend to just say it's a group of friends sitting around telling stories and laughing. Right. And so you don't uh, have any, you don't try and sell it. If someone is interested, they'll buy into it. If they're not, then you know it, it, it's it's a funny one because there's some people you just wouldn't bother bringing it up with because they're not going to understand it and they're not going to appreciate it. And there's other people where you can take the time to give them a bit more of an example. Uh, if needs be, I can turn around and say to someone that kind of that concept of okay, I describe a scene, you tell me what you're doing. So and I can I can do that on the spot if needs be. Right. Yeah, I think that's uh, uh, 
it's a pretty common thread that people will selectively choose what it is that they're whether they're going to mention it or, or not. And is it just because you don't you don't have the time to explain to somebody that's, that's not interested, or do you, do you find that you're uh, do you sometimes not mention it to people for because uh, they're going to just think that you're weird or you know that it's a that's a, a a, a poorly uh, like it's the, it's a the stereotypical role player, you know, like outing yourself. Some people just aren't worth the time, right? Uh, once upon a time, I wouldn't have you know when I was younger, I wouldn't have mentioned it because uh, it would have labelled me as a, as an epic geek, and that would have that would have hurt my feelings possibly. But now I'm quite happy to tell people. I've uh, told most of my workmates. You know, they'll be like, oh, "What are you doing tonight?" I'll be like, "Oh, I'm role playing," and they'll have a bit of a laugh and. But I've even um, I've actually got some of them to give me ideas. I'm like, oh, look, I've I've got gaming and X hours. I've got no idea what I'm going to do. Give me an idea, and they'll actually throw things out. But uh, you know, it's it's evolved so much from the time of Dungeons and Dragons that I'm loath to say Dungeons and Dragons because that conjures up those images. Right. But uh, yeah, I, nowadays I. I Either it's someone that's worth talking to, and then I'll take the time to explain it, or it's someone that you say hello, how are you? Yes, I'm fine, thanks, and that's it. So you don't bother. Right. Um, so, as a GM, would you characterise yourself as somebody that does a lot of specific preparation, or no specific preparation? You let the characters drive the story, or somewhere in between? Uh, somewhere in between. Sometimes I will have a lot written down and a lot of ideas, but I only ever plan out events. I don't plan out uh, what the players are going to do. I say that this is a place where something's going to happen, and of course you can change that if you need to. But uh, So I, I try and just plan out events, and, and generally I'll just let the players go where they want to. Right, so if you were going to prepare for a session, what would you do? might be as complex as drawing a map and writing down some stats, or it might be as simple as writing two names on a piece of paper. And just seeing where the wind blows you? Yeah. I'm, I'm more often than not, I'm a see where the wind blows you. Uh, for example, going back to the things that I draw inspiration from, there was a song, uh, the lyrics were something along the lines of, with my lightning bolts are glowing, I can see where I am going to. Uh, and that basically set me up for an entire session where there was an enormous storm and generally the only time you could see was during the flashes of lightning. It's kind of cliche, but it's kind of cool. Right. Yeah, that that's, um, sort of fits in with, with what you're saying earlier on. It's the uh, it's just finding that thing that, that captures your imagination and, and then letting it go, mm. letting it go with that and having the players interact with it. So uh, have you played uh, Fatal or have you... Uh, have you read about it? Farrell was talking about it last week, and I hadn't, I hadn't heard of it. But I did some research on the internet uh, afterwards, and uh, apparently it's one of the unholy uh, trinity of, of role-playing games. I don't recall what the other two were, um, but um, Farrell's description of, of Fatal was um, <laughs> talking about you have to characterise your uh, anal circumference, which I, I found interesting... Uh, for two reasons. One, that there would be such a stat, but then if you're going to have a stat, why you would choose circumference as opposed to diameter or even uh, or even radius. Um, do you have any experience with <laughs> No, no, I've got no experience with Fatal whatsoever. I, I uh, go back to my head in the sand kind of thing. I generally don't see a game until someone's put it right in front of me. I, I don't tend to go out and look for them, but uh, Farrell talked to me about it and... Uh, it does seem a little odd and a little, a little bit disturbing and probably unnecessary. Mm. 
Yeah, that, that's the question uh, that sort of came up with uh, with um, Sean in episode four. Is it are there things that you that you won't role play? We t- he talked about. Well, it was um, a chap who wrote Sorcerer. Um, who had said, you know, you've got veils, and I forget exactly what it was, but basically, you know, you'll have things that happen, you know, like you get the, the two lovers and they tumble into bed, and then they wake up the next morning and they're sort of, uh, sort of partially covered with the sheets. You don't actually ever get to see the sex, but it's, but it's implied. Are there, are there areas that you won't role play in? Well, it, it comes down to is there a point? Right. With things like sex, for example, Mostly really unnecessary in a game, I feel, uh, unless it's used uh, with a specific plot piece in mind. For example, you might want to lull someone into a false sense of security so that that person that they wind up being intimate with can do something horrible to them. Then, sure, throw it in there. But uh, I'd... I tend to, you know, it comes down to why Why would you put it in, does it add to the game, and does it detract from the game? Right. Do you mean does it detract or add from the plot, or does it detract or add to character development? Because those are two really different ideas in terms of something like uh, sex. So, for example, if you are role-playing a person who is, you know, particularly... Um, you know, like as James Bond esque. You know, do you need to, like, for example, somebody who's role playing them is, 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 and this is probably for a more mature role play than somebody else. But, um, but I'll use the sex as an example, though. That's probably imperfect because you've got issues of, you know, like uh, being embarrassed. But I'll go with the example to illustrate the point. If somebody is interested in. Um, Experiencing what it would be like to be a, uh, you know, a fantastic lover. I'm not necessarily saying that it's your responsibility as a GM to um, dot all your I's and cross all your T's in this particular encounter. But by just saying, you know, it's awesome. The end, to a degree, diminishes their experience of role playing that character. And, and do you feel any responsibility to flesh something like that? That out, and as I say, I'm not necessarily saying you need to talk about every intimate detail. But instead of just saying, you know, and you tumble into the bed and you're awesome, you know, that you <laughs> you, you, you take the trouble to paint, you know, scene like you know, you light your candles and you put your your shawls over the life and stuff like that. Like, do you have any responsibility as a GM to um, help players to play out their characters? And so not. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, some some games have skill roles that'll uh, involve that, and in some cases, you know, like James Bond, quite often will wind up uh, at, at an advantage because he slept with someone. So you've got to try and you know bring that in. You know, it's not just uh, being the local tavern wench. It's it's you know because you've had sex with this person and it was amazing and you didn't go into the details but you know that happened uh, then later on you can turn around and say that that person comes back into the plot and is uh, is then you know going to treat you favorably because it was good or is going to treat you unfavorably because it was bad so once yeah if it if it's fun if the the players are enjoying it if it's helping build the story then go for gold whatever it is 
Right. But um, if it's detracting from it or if someone's uncomfortable with it, mm. then probably probably not. Uh, and, and it depends how you approach it too. You're not going to um, go go around, uh, you know, describing epic details for some stuff mm. uh, that you might for others. Uh, I I quite like. Um, yeah, I might describe blood squelching or bone snapping from um, from a creature biting something or someone, but I wouldn't go into those kind of details with something like, for example, sex. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us, Dave. It was good to catch up with you on uh, role-playing matters. And I'd love to have you back on the show again if you want to develop that chat R up game. We can, uh, we can perhaps uh, throw some ideas around. Yeah, I've, uh, I've got some other ideas too that I'd like to throw around, but uh, if you want to okay, develop that game, then why not? <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, David Rick. Cheers. That's it for episode 9 of Penny Red. If you've got any comments arising from the show, send them to daniel at hazardgaming.com. So until next week, keep talking the walk. Keep talking the walk.